Today on Buffalo What's Next, we begin our Charleston Buffalo A Parallel Journey of Hope, Healing, and Reconciliation series. I'm Thomas O'Neill White. Our first episode is my sit-down with Pastor Thomas Dixon of Life Community Church in the Charleston metro area. Pastor Dixon is a self-described advocate and activist, and we talk honestly about the similarities in socioeconomic conditions between Charleston and North Charleston's black residents and Buffalo's black residents. We speak on what has or hasn't changed in the Charleston area in the nearly eight years since the tragedy at the Mother Emanuel AME Church and racism. Time has a way of revealing things. And uh, for a long time, race, racial issues and things like that were covered over. We also talk a little bit about local politics in South Carolina and how it has helped or impeded social progress in the state. All of this and more on today's special edition of Buffalo What's Next. WBFO special reports from Charleston, South Carolina for Buffalo What's Next are funded by our members and Health Foundation for Western and Central New York and WNY Medical. WBFO is grateful for their support. We need to get together and let our voices be heard. This is Buffalo What's Next. I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. And I'm Thomas O'Neill White. After May 14th, how can we afford not to talk about race? About education, about segregation, about humanity. Since the dawn of this nation, racial violence has existed. The way we have designed our society has a big hand in what occurred in that Topps market. The suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. We need to make sure that we put more funding in our programs that help prevent gun violence and more money into art. We're going to have some real healing. We've got to have space to tell some uncomfortable truths. All right, Thomas O'Neill White here with Pastor Thomas Dixon, from North Charleston. North Charleston. North Charleston, South Carolina. Pastor, thank you for being with us today. Um, we're coming up on eight years since the tragedy at Mother Emanuel AME Church. You seem to have the tenor of the Charleston area's black community. Is that fair to say? Uh, somewhat. Somewhat. Yes, somewhat. Yes. A, little, uh, a little connected. Mm-hmm. Okay. Have things changed here? How have things changed here in the eight years since the tragedy? Speaking on racial issues, there's been some movement forward overall, though, within this state uh, that's steeped in racism and racial bias. The underpinnings of economic success and educational success and all of the things that it really takes in order to be successful in America, those things are still lacking far behind. But in the, um, and the, you know, in the in the rise of um, racial hatred being acceptable over the last few years, we we've really we've we've kind of felt it. But over overall, on a day to day basis, you know, just with uh, regular interactions with people, it's it's not uh, um, like really prominent. This is not not the time of year time anymore, where we had separate but equal restrooms. Right. But we do have separate but equal schools. How would you describe South Carolina? for someone who has not, or Charleston, mm-hmm. North Charleston, and, and South Carolina, mm-hmm. for folks who have not been here. I've, this is actually the first time I've been here. I've been through it. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's what people say, gotta go through it. Uh, but I've never spent time mm-hmm. here. So how would you describe South Carolina and, and the Charleston area? Well, welcome. Uh, my, <laughs> my intent originally was to go through South Carolina. 
Right. Uh, I've been here since 1986. I got stationed here with the military, uh, leaving Chicago um, to get away from the weather and all of that and some other things, other personal things. Mm -hmm. uh, I got here. I was like, okay, well, this is a good stop. I'm trying to get further south where it's even warmer weather, nicer weather. But now here it is all of these years later since 1986, and um, I'm still here. Charleston is a great place. My uh, earlier years, much of my earlier years, which, which weren't spent in activism, I did like many people that are here, and especially the tourists that come here, I did not really understand the depth of the uh, racial issues that Charleston has been, you know, has been subjected under. And now, many of those issues are still hidden, but they're being more brought to the forefront. Time has a way of revealing things. And uh, for a long time, race, racial issues and things like that were covered over. Uh, there were two different, in Charleston, there, were, there, were, there was a, a, a different tour from reality. There was a non-reality racial tour, mm -hmm. and then there's a reality. Uh, and most of the tourists got the non-reality part of it. They didn't get the, the ugly part of the slavery issue here that dictated, that showed that 95, I mean, excuse me, 65% of the uh, Africans who were brought to uh, North America came in through Sullivan's Island, and then their first step on, step on the mainland was in Charleston at Gadsden's Wharf. Wow. Um, most people don't know that. Our tourist, uh, our tourist um, um, facilities didn't give that information out. They avoided all of that. Uh, some of the uh, large, beautiful homes downtown in downtown Charleston have at the top of their fences these, it looks like barbed um, barbed wire tops, but okay. it's not barbed wire. No, it's like it's a de decor decorative, oh, very okay. ornate, pretty. Yes. And just looking at it, it's like, that's really a nice fence, but really it was, they were put there in order to prevent any uh, intrusion by any rebellious slaves who might want to come into their homes. They had wow. to climb, climb over these spiked fences. Yeah, so there's a whole lot here. Um, as far as uh, what I would say about Ch Charleston, North Charleston, the low country right now, is that it is a beautiful place to visit. It's a wonderful place to visit. And it's a place that I would encourage anybody to come and to visit and who wants to move here to move here but to understand and to learn, take time to research and to get with the people who know the ins and outs of the real low country, uh, to get with the Gullah Geechee Nation here and see what they, how their lands have been taken from them to develop places like Hilton Head and other places, Kiowa and Seabrook Island. Um, and you know, to really get a feel of what the real history of Charleston is, and that gives that will give anybody a much more a much more well-rounded uh, view. Would you say that the the uh, Mother Emanuel tragedy has shined more of a light on race relations and South Carolina's history? Was that the uh, catalyst, or was it just that the process was already mm -hmm. happening? Uh, with Mother Emanuel. I, 2015, I have to take in two segments here in the Low Country when it comes to race. It, it, because four months before that, in April, excuse me, three months before that, in April of 2015, was the murder of Walter Scott right, right here in North Charleston. Yes. Where a white North Charleston police officer shot Walter Scott in the back. Five, he, I think he was hit eight times. He was shot, fired at eight times and hit five mm -hmm. in his back. And, of course, the, the story was you know, developing, I feared for my life and all of this. I had to shoot him. 
and we found out. But that's why I wear the shirt today. Do do you believe, you know? Do you believe us now? Because for a long time we had talked about unfair policing. We had talked about over aggressive policing. We had been telling our mayors and our city councils there's a policing problem, and they didn't believe us. And so when Walter Scott happened, a friend of mine developed this shirt that says, "Do you believe us now?" Um, the that brought the racial issue to the front, forefront here in the low country mm -hmm. because it galvanized the community around that one cause. Then three months later, here we had nine believers in Mother Emanuel murdered by a white supremacist who actually should not have even been able to get his hand on that gun. But he did. That's a whole other conversation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but he did. And... Um, the racial tensions that were in, that that were, were heightened in both of them, had it not been for community representatives out here in the streets in both cases, this the low country would have burned. It would have burned. It would have done just as many other cities had, had done. Uh, the pain, um, the internalized pain that uh, urban um, African Americans, uh, the poverty uh, we uh, that we endure uh, on a daily basis. Uh, those situations have a tendency to ignite those passions and bring them out. And it, it could have happened here, but we had dedicated people on the ground who were able to intervene uh, and, in, in order to prevent this place from actually blowing up. And it sure wasn't the police that did it. It wasn't the mayors that did it. Mm -hmm. it. It was people with their boots on the ground that did it. It's very similar to what happened after the top shooting in Buffalo. Mm -hmm. uh, on May Fourteenth, uh, mm -hmm. um, it was it was community members, community leaders, mm -hmm. who stepped up, uh, and you know there there's just so many. I I wouldn't say so many, but there are parallels just between mm -hmm. the two the two incidences. Sadly, um, you know for 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 Peyton Gendron, who was the the uh, murderer of the Tops Market, yeah. mm -hmm. uh, he was able to target Buffalo's black community specifically mm -hmm. because of buffalo's mm -hmm. segregated history um does does charleston suffer from the same thing from the same problem charleston and north charleston absolutely absolutely we have um here in, in in especially over the last few years we've seen the rise of militia groups here in uh south carolina the white nationalists um and there are three geographical strongholds for them one of them is right here in the Low Country. The other is in the Midlands, and the other is in the Upstate. And these groups are on the rise, and they are—they uh, have violent tendencies. They're, as a matter of fact, their their tendencies to be more violent have been heightened over the last few years. It seems like they have permission now to be that. Um, right here locally, every Sunday morning since Mother Emanuel, there's a group of Confederate flaggers. And they go down to White Point Gardens, which is right at the tip of the peninsula. It's a big, it's a beautiful uh, space out there. And they go to that space every Sunday morning, and they stay there for about four hours. They have these huge Confederate flags and everything. And yeah, I heard about this yeah, recently. Yeah, they um, and we they, they, they march. No, they just they just stay they stay in that they stay in that one spot. They stay in that one spot. Um, but there are some ordinances that are being violated by them being there and doing with the, you know, with the size of their, their banners and things like that. 
um, but they are not stopped. And, you know, we've had counter protests, especially uh, after George Floyd's uh, murder. Um, we had counter protests there, and the law enforcement in the city of Charleston demonized the George Floyd supporters, the, the anti Confederate flag protesters, as opposed to, you know, telling them, okay, we you know we need to shut this down, really, or something. Or, yeah, we uh, see we see a lot of that across the country. Mm -hmm. That the 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 counter protesters are the ones who are vilified. Always. Um, is that mm -hmm. you were talking about the violation of ordinances? Mm -hmm. I mean, can you put heat on law enforcement to to say, hey, they're they're in violation? We've gotten to the point. Uh, there are there's a small group that's still fighting uh, because you know that and that fight with them didn't start with George Floyd actually uh, because they started doing this not long after Mother Emanuel and that's one mile about a mile and a half from where Mother Emanuel AME Church is and so this was intentional by them in order to more or less antagonize or even to throw dirt in the face of the victims of the Mother Emanuel tragedy by standing because we know that Dylan Roof actually flew under that banner. That was one of his, mm -hmm. he idolized that mm -hmm. flag. And so now here you are a mile and a half doing this. So um, the, the, the ordinances we've brought to the attention of the city and the city law enforcement, city council, they, they ignored, they've ignored our pleas. Um, we have uh, in the city of Charleston now, uh, at the time of Mother Emanuel, we had one police chief, and now there's a different police chief. The previous police chief, he wasn't especially open-minded when it came to racial issues, especially pointing fingers at his, his, his department. Mm -hmm. The new uh, police chief, the current police chief, he came in with the, under the guise of, uh, you know, I want to make it right between the police and the community and overall. He turned out, especially after George Floyd, to, Floyd to be a law and order police chief, and uh, he he basically gave his um, his police free reign to kind of not only intimidate but to lock up uh, the protesters. They, 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 we were under attack. Um, out of that, that same police chief demonized me as an individual to his his department. Um, and um, that's why I don't go into the city of Charleston much anymore, uh, and I because I don't <laughs> I don't feel you feel, like, you feel <laughs> like you're a target. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. I have some friends that are still on the um, that are on the Charles City of Charleston Police Force, and they're still cordial. Uh, they're they're still cordial, mm -hmm. but I'm just not comfortable um, anywhere and everywhere like I used to be. Especially known, being known for somebody that's going to speak out for what's truth, speak up for justice. Even if it's the police, I'm going to tell the truth. And they were given free reign to, to or actually, I believe, lied about me, you know, lied to about me. Um, and so I, I don't, I don't I try not to travel those circles too mm -hmm. much. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How does, how does Charleston, or how does the community honor uh, the victims of Mother Emanuel? Well, um, there have been, various events on the, um, when that day rolls around uh, that the city does. But in my personal opinion, I'd much rather give my personal opinion on this. Of course. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think um, a lot of it's ceremony, a lot of it's pomp and circumstance, a lot of it's superficial. 
even to the point now, I believe it may, might even be shifting to being a money-making venture. Um, I think that last year they had an event at the Gilliard Auditorium, and they, so the pr ticket prices were definitely out of reach from the common, ordinary people here. You know, and um, once we get to that point, the memory of the victims has faded. Right. And right. The, the but the use of their names hasn't mm -hmm. and uh, we I think we see a lot of that when the city the city had an opportunity to do quite a bit in the names of the victims but it was again it was mostly superficial um, they planted some trees you know this was the, one of the most horrendous killings that we've seen um, and um, what was done in the aftermath, you know, it, it was it was it was ridiculous. It's in my in my humble opinion. Even when it comes to what happened in the state house with them removing the Confederate flag from the top of the state house building and moving it, uh, excuse me, from the state house grounds, um, the, the, was that just a, another like act of symbolism? That's all it was. That's all it was. And to this day, um, the former governor then, the, Nikki Haley. Um, she still pats herself on the back about she's the one that, you know, uh, I got the Confederate flag removed from the state house grounds. She got it removed because other than that, this state might have burned down. Mm. You see, mm -hmm. it, it, it's, it's, it, it's funny how in the aftermath of these things, when change happens, how those who fought against the change want to take credit for the change. And um, I don't like that and I don't got can't get with that. <laughs> Um, has 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 this all made made it more difficult to have real talks about race and racism in this area? I mean, given given South Carolina's history, <laughs> um, I, I think it, it's it's actually given South Carolina's history, given the large volume of people of good people that are here. Um, is that what's well, keeping you here? Yes. The good people? <laughs> the good people. They're the, one, they're the wind beneath my wings. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but they, 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 are, they are vocal. Like the group that's uh, the counter-protesters for the Confederate flag. They're predominantly white. Right. You know, and um, I work with um, other organizations here who are not necessarily, you know, um, um, single-raced. You know, they're, they're multi-race multi mm -hmm. uh, organizations. And... Um, um, gender or orientations of, of, of everything. And it's those folks that just continue to keep me working and keep me moving because, the, the, uh, and, they're, and the numbers are growing because I believe it is because of the influx of people from the North returning to the South or coming to the South and staying. And so that redness of the state is turning. It's not to the purple stage yet, but it's turning. And those who are causing the most trouble, those who are continuing to hold on to the racial, the racist beliefs, they're being they're being minimized. Actually, they are uh, they are decreasing in size. The problem is though, the white supremacist system that they support runs this state. Right. So it's very hard to overcome. Yes. When you're under a systemic uh, when oppression. It's institutional. Institutional yes. oppression. Yes. yes. And that's kind of made it hard, I guess, for like uh, a push to a hate crime mm -hmm. bill. We've got a hate crime bill in New York State <laughs> mm -hmm. and the the top shooter was charged with a with a hate crime. Mm -hmm. Um where where's the state on that on a, on a hate crime bill? Still fighting. Still fighting it. 
two states in the nation left without a hate crimes bill in spite of the fact of what happened in Mother Emanuel in 2015, um, which is crazy. Uh, it, um, State Representative Wendell Gillard started pushing hate crimes bill then. And here we are all these years later and we're still pushing for the same hate crimes bill. And actually there was a previous um, um, legislator uh, representative who started, I think in like 2007, and put a bill on the table for a hate crimes bill, and, and they overlooked that. But it's been consistent since then with Representative Gilliard, and it makes no sense to me, especially because in the aftermath, you know, uh, State Senator Clemente Pinckney was one of the victims. He was the pastor yep. and Mother Emanuel and one of the victims there. Mm -hmm. And there are people that are still that still sit in the General Assembly who served in the General Assembly with him. They were friends with him. And after the murder, his body was laid, was, was stood, you know, uh, um, yeah, in, in state, in, state mm -hmm. in the, at the General Assembly. And these same people filed past his body, stood to comfort his widow, his children, said, we're praying for you. But the same thing that facilitated him being there, hate. They refuse to pass a hate crime bill. These same people, I don't understand that mentality. That, that's got to be infuriating. Yes, it is. It is. It is. And um, I did a, a little analysis last year when, uh, when they were talking about those who were opposing it in the uh, Senate. And um, I found out that uh, the same districts where uh, that the senators who opposed it, these five senators opposed it, they are also the highest concentrations of militia in South Carolina. Wow. Yeah. One of the early ones right now, um, this year, as the, as the bill is, still, is being discussed, um, was, was one from last year. And um, he, is, he lives uh, right, in, right in the heart of, of one of the militia districts. So I kind of understand their point. Mm -hmm. that, that for them to vote against it, they're voting against their constituents. Oh yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I, and and I think I'm being very gentle about them and giving grace about them because I really believe in my heart that they are voting against it because they don't see racism the way that people that are impacted by racism see racism. Of course, mm -hmm. and that's that's it's the same thing with 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 anything. Yep. If it if it doesn't affect you. You know, you don't, you don't, you don't understand it. And mm -hmm. when people tell you it's happening, mm -hmm. you kind of brush it. You, you, you kind of hear them, mm -hmm. but then you're kind of like, well, I don't really believe you. <laughs> this is Buffalo What's Next on location in Charleston, South Carolina, discussing eight years since the tragedy at Mother Emanuel AME Church in Charleston and what Buffalo can learn as it nears the one year anniversary of 514. Thomas O'Neill White here with Pastor Thomas Dixon of Life Community Church in Mount Pleasant. We are taking a short break. Stay with us. My name is David Fordham, and over the last 20 years, I've gone through libraries, archives, old museums, and interviews with the elderly to get the stories that have been seldom told elsewhere, and I've collected them into four books, a newspaper column, a radio show, a YouTube channel, travels around the country, uh, courses that I teach, and this tour called If These Streets Could Talk, the Lost Stories of Black Charleston. Our tale begins in 1526 with King Ferdinand of Spain, 
who sent an explorer named Juan Lucas Vasquez de Alion to the shores of what we now call Georgetown, South Carolina, 50 miles to the north of us. And he brought with him a boatload of Spaniards as well as Africans. Well, he set up what he called the colony of San Miguel Guadalupe, which was short-lived because Juan Lucas Vasquez de Alion died early in the voyage and he left behind an incompetent administrator who was so bad that the Africans rose up and killed him. Not only was this the first known slave rebellion we have on record in North America, it was the first one that had any success. So the Africans then fled into the interior where they blended into the Native American population and married a number of them, and their descendants are believed to be among the black people of Georgetown, South Carolina today. So the surviving Spaniards then sailed back to Spain and they filed a report with King Ferdinand which can today be read in a book called Yes, Lord, I Know the Road by J. Brent Morris, which is the source of this story. So 150 or so years later, King Charles II of England colonized this area, and being the humble, modest, and unassuming guy that he was, he named this place Charlestown. Real creative, right? So the next year, Captain Nathaniel Sale sailed from England on a ship called the Three Brothers, and on the way, here with a bunch of settlers, they stopped in Barbados, where they purchased three Africans who were given the English names of John, John Jr., and Elizabeth. Needless to say, we don't know their African names. So they ended up here on these shores in April of 1670, and that was the beginning of slavery and settlement in the Charleston area. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. We're back discussing the tragedy of Mother Emanuel AME Church, racism, politics, and if there's anything Buffalo can learn from what has and what hasn't happened in the eight years since the Mother Emanuel shooting. We are in South Carolina, Thomas O'Neill White, sitting in with Pastor Thomas Dixon of Life Community Church. So as, as the state becomes a little more purple, mm -hmm. you know, kind of like North Carolina, mm -hmm. I mean, Carol North Carolina's a little further ahead, would you, mm -hmm. would you agree? A little, yeah. A little. <laughs> <laughs> um, but as the as as South Carolina turns a little bit more purple, I mean, do you think do you think a hate crimes bill will will come up again? Will will be put put into the the Senate? I, I believe it is going to be. Um, uh, it'll be it'll be eventually passed. Um, unfortunately, uh, every. It, for me, it's not when it will be passed, it's what will happen before it passes. Because the potential for another Mother Emanuel, the potential for an Ahmaud Arbery situation, the, the, it's all here. You know, uh, Georgia was smart enough right after Ahmaud Arbery, they were, at that time, I think they were one of like three or four states without a hate crimes bill. They immediately passed a, a hate crimes mm -hmm. bill. So we here in South Carolina, my prayer is that it's not going to, in the meantime, until it does happen, that something that's something tragic, like that tragic, yeah, yeah. doesn't yeah. happen. Right, right, right. What of the policy changes mm -hmm. for the state would you like to see 
maybe not even mm-hmm. regarding like hate crimes or anything like mm-hmm. that. Well, you were talking about you had mentioned um, what uh, gun bill an assault rifle. Oh yes, yes, definitely an assault rifle ban. There's there's so much. You know, I'm a I'm a member of the Brady Brady United Brady campaign to prevent uh, gun violence. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm on their national board of trustees. So um, the, uh, the assault weapons ban, um, uh, implementing ex- extreme risk protection orders, um, these are all things that need to happen. Uh, when it comes to gun violence, nothing should be off the table because of the fact that guns kill. And right. I know there are those who say, well, the people, you know, they, they, yes, I, yeah, yeah. I know that argument. I know that uh-huh. argument. My response is always, well, Yes, it's the person that does it, but without a gun, they could not have done as much damage, or it would have taken much longer to do so, and less people harmed. But um, definitely when it comes to uh, implementation of um, legislation that's going to reduce gun violence, something that as a red state, our legislators, a state that actually uh, has been a two-thirds majority Republican General Assembly for the last 20 years, uh, the state that has had a Republican governor for the last 20 years. Um, we need to make this change to save lives. Along with that, what else would I like to, because dealing with systemic racism, there are so many different layers uh, that have to be addressed mm-hmm. educationally. Educationally, South Carolina is uh, one of the worst states in the nation. We're, I think this year we're like 44 out of 50. We've been 48, 46, 47. It's, it's been consistent. And instead of them pushing for public education, they've allowed others to come in with privatization and tried to convince school boards that privatization is the route. Now we have this whole another faction that's moving in, this Moms for Liberty group. Taking public funds and putting it, diverting it, them to exactly. same thing is going on and, in mm-hmm. Western New York. And we're, and we're New York State. Yeah, yeah. Instead of investing in the public school system. And then they say, well, the public school system has failed. Well, it's because you never invested in it, you know. If you had invested in it, it might not have failed. And so um, it's time to stop failing our children. But that's another aspect. As far as poverty, poverty in uh, South Carolina, this is one of the lowest states for, you know, you know or highest states for poverty. Um, we, it's a, it's a um, uh, minimum wage state. Um, it's an at-will state. Uh, that means folks can fire you at will. They don't need an excuse or anything like mm-hmm. that. And uh, it's a right-to-work state. Uh, it's a state where in the educational process, kids are told in school that unions are no good. So uh, they've, they're, they're perpetuating the slave system in, in that manner. Uh, so that, and that's another aspect of this entire uh, process, you know. Um, and one of the things that I've seen, and I know there are those who will get mad at me when I say it, you know, coming from uh, Chicago, from Illinois, from up north, and moving south. I've seen and interacted with enough people here to know that there, it, there is a lot of the sense, I don't want to use the term, but I'm, I'm going to say it, that crabism, <laughs> where, you know... We, Crabs we, in a bucket? Yes, we fight against each other here. And it, right. it, more than any place I've ever lived, I've seen, the, you know... It, People here cut each other off, cut their throats, they, you know, mm-hmm. whatever it mm-hmm. takes. And, but when it comes to oppression and oppressors, they're tolerant of them. But they go in on each other here. And I don't know how we break that down, but it's another learned behavior. Is it, is it because this is like the spot of the oppressor 
is where they're trying to get to. Maybe not mm-hmm. be- becoming the oppressor, but mm-hmm. getting up to that spot. Exactly. Getting up to that spot, you're mm-hmm. gonna have to, mm-hmm. you know, cut some legs. Which is and a then, learned behavior. A throwback to to the slavery, the institution of slavery. Yeah. So. I think that might lie in the DNA somewhere because I've never seen anything <laughs> like it. You know, uh, I can't do good for people. I have I have to fight my people before I can do good for them. Right, right. You know, it, right, makes, no, it right. makes no sense. You know, I was gonna ask you about mm-hmm. intersectionality mm-hmm. Uh, in in both tragedies, because um, in Charleston we see the intersectionality between race, religion, and the dangerous rhetoric. rhetoric on the internet that influenced Dylan Roof. Um, and in Buffalo, it was it was race, socioeconomic status, mm-hmm. because the, the killer was able to target mm-hmm. African-Americans because our city is so segregated. And he was influenced by the same rhetoric that Dylan Roof was. Mm-hmm. But talking with you, and getting a better sense of what's going on in in the Charleston area, this is all the same. Yes, it is all the same. The mm-hmm. same stuff mm-hmm. that's that 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 created a Dylan Roof to to target African Americans is the same mm-hmm. stuff that t- and Peyton Gendron was not from. He was from. Mm-hmm. Uh, a county way for like four hours away mm-hmm. from from Western New York, but it's the same stuff, the same the same things plaguing uh, Charleston's black community, the mm-hmm. same stuff that's plaguing Buffalo's black community. Exactly, exactly. We've seen it. We've seen it manifest everywhere. I mean, in Brunswick, Brunswick, Georgia, with the Ahmaud Aubrey situation, mm-hmm. you know, the Travis brothers. It's the same thing. And until we get to the point of not only identifying um, that or acknowledging that it's the same thing, but actually identifying the systems that contributed to it, then we can't fix this problem because it's going to continue. And we can pass all of the hate crimes bills in the world, Mm -hmm. um, but until we actually roll up our sleeves and say we're going to do something about this Holistically, yes, we're not going to get anywhere. Addressing the root causes. The root causes. We seem to always want to just push those yep. aside and mm-hmm. do the big yeah. thing yeah. that really doesn't have. Mm-hmm. It'll get you clicks. Mm-hmm. It'll it'll bring the press out, mm-hmm. but it's not really doing anything for the people who need to be mm-hmm. who who are underserved. That's right. That's right. That's that's what, and that's I believe that's what happened um, with the racial bias audit in the city of Charleston. Um, that was instituted in late 2019, I believe it was. Oh, talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, um, the it, it, the new police chief that came in after the previous one left, mm-hmm. the one that was here during Mother Emanuel, he left, and they brought in a new police chief, and he came in like he's the, I'm, I'm the people guy. And so they did decide to do a racial bias audit, even though after um, both Walter Scott and Mother Emanuel, the community had asked for some type of audit, been asking for some type of audits, and not only Charleston, but North Charleston. But he came in and, and he got it started. So um, they apparently, um, they've, they are just, they came up with 70, 70 plus areas of racial disparities within the police department. Wow. And um, most of which we knew already, and we had been trying to tell the police, do you believe us now? You know, <laughs> we had been trying to tell them for a long time about these things, but they just ignored us. Now they brought in this, this, this professional uh, company 
that actually went through their all of their books, interviewed their officers, interviewed the community and everything. They took all this information and compiled it and found 70, I think it was 73 different areas where the police department was definitely violating racial situations, um, the way there was racial bias at. Um, it's my understanding that um, just a couple of weeks ago, a week ago or so, that they said that they've just got to the last of the the um, points, the bullet points, uh, addressing the last of the bullet, bullet points. But what bothers me is that with that, before I get to the North Charleston area, is this happened, it started four years after Mother Emanuel. Mm -hmm. That was the first thing, when it could have been, it should have been immediate. almost immediate. Yeah. yeah. And then it was conducted during the period 2020, where you had February, you had the killing of uh, Ahmaud Arbery. Mm -hmm. March, you had the killing of Breonna Taylor. Taylor. May, you had George Floyd. And racial issues came to the forefront. Mm -hmm. But the same people who had just conducted a racial uh, audit, racial bias audit, and were now in the process of beginning to start to actually address it, that's when they demonized the black community. <laughs> who, who uh, unfortunately were labeled um, the bad guys because of agent provocateurs who came in from outside places and caused trouble one night in May of uh, 2020. One night. So all of the protests since then, we, the, the, the protesters in the Charleston people mm -hmm. were labeled according to what was done then, and none okay. of the protesters here were there. So that to me, that kind of negated whatever they might have been doing for racial bias audit. And here it is now, these years since then, again, for me, I don't feel comfortable going into Charleston, especially to address racial issues. I go because it's got to be done. Mm -hmm. But I, I watch my back. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I watch my back. Uh, now, moving forward, though, um, in 2018, we changed police chiefs here in North Charleston, and we got an African-American police chief who had been part on the force since 1989, actually. So, And he actually should have been police chief before then, my personal opinion, mm -hmm. but they overlooked him. So in um, 2018, he was moved up to the chief of police body. And he came in with the thought of community-based policing, which was something outside of law and order and moving in the right direction. And where we had been calling for in North Charleston a racial bias audit um, for uh, quite a while, he got it started. He got it done. Um, and they've concluded that racial bias audit. There were dozens of, of issues in North Charleston that were identified also. And they're working to clear these up. The only difference is between the city of Charleston and the city of North Charleston is that in North Charleston, the acceptance of the truth is embraced, or it, the truth is embraced. Mm -hmm. The faults that were are embraced, so we can work through them. No excuses for them. Okay, right. It happened. Here's what we're going to do, and here's what we are doing to remedy them. And if you see any problems, let us know so we can fix that. Yeah. In the city of Charleston. I don't want to hear that. We, right, we, right. We're doing it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> we're, yeah. Doing we're already it. We're, good. We're, we're good. getting it done. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so they don't want any feedback like that. <laughs> 
This is Buffalo What's Next, on location in Charleston, South Carolina, discussing eight years since the tragedy at Mother Emanuel AME Church in Charleston and what Buffalo can learn as it nears the one-year anniversary of 514. Thomas O'Neill White here with Pastor Thomas Dixon of Life Community Church in Mount Pleasant. We are taking a short break. Stay with us. historic Broad Street where most of our historical buildings are located and, with, and most of them have some really interesting history to it. The black building behind us, the number 91, that was the very first black-owned law firm in the United States. The first black lawyer in America was Macon B. Allen, who was born a free man in Indiana in 1816. And in the 1830s, as a young man, he went to Maine and during his time in Maine, he studied for and got his law license. So he practiced law in Boston in 1845. In 1868, three years after the fall of slavery and the end of the Confederacy and the rise of Reconstruction, he came down here and started his law practice in that building with two black Charlestonian lawyers, Robert Brown Elliott and William J. Whipper. Robert Brown Elliott made history in 1871, where against the fears of his wife, he testified against the brutality of the Ku Klux Klan before Congress. And so that testimony so moved President Ulysses S. Grant that President Grant signed the Enforcement Act of 1871 that made domestic terrorism a federal offense. So every act of domestic terrorism that has been to our court system since then has, from the Ku Klux Klan up through the people who bombed and burned ROTC buildings during the Vietnam War era up to the events of January the 6th. All of these have been prosecuted under the Enforcement Act of 1871, and we owe all that to Robert Brown Elliott, who practiced law in that building until the fall of Reconstruction in 1877. Afterwards, he went to New Orleans, where he died of tuberculosis in 1884 at the age of 42. So Macon B. Allen died of Alzheimer's disease in 1894. And in February of 2020, I gave Robert Brown Elliott's great-granddaughter a tour of that building. And that's one of the reasons why I love what I do. <laughs> this is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. We're back discussing the tragedy of Mother Emanuel AME Church, racism, politics, and if there's anything Buffalo can learn from what has and what hasn't happened in the eight years since the Mother Emanuel shooting. We are in South Carolina, Thomas O'Neill White, sitting in with Pastor Thomas Dixon of Life Community Church. You're very politically involved. 
Um, so bit. you mentioned activism. Do you consider yourself an activist? Because you know sometimes I guess in this in, in what you've said, you know people look at you, especially if you're in Charleston, like mm -hmm. oh there, mm -hmm. there goes Pastor Dixon. Mm -hmm. So okay. is it do you, do you, do you consider yourself an activist? Um, is it part of your calling? I I prefer the term advocate over activist. And it's to my it's to, to my own personal detriment that I prefer that. And I, and I had to put it that way because as an activist, especially when my ad, my my activism has been to um, um, level a playing field when it comes to racial bias, mm -hmm. uh, reduce gun violence, yeah. uh, make sure kids are getting good education, uh, make sure people get people are getting paid, make sure that our health system is correct or whatever. In my in my activism in those areas, I haven't activated. <laughs> the community has not been act. The people I'm trying to activate have not been activated, even within the community structure. So I prefer the term advocate now mm -hmm. because it takes the onus of me having production in this in this frustrating work that I do. Politically, I ran for U.S. Senate in 2016 against Tim, Tim Scott. Scott. Yeah, mm -hmm. He's back in the news. Yeah, that guy. Yeah, yeah. Well, had they elected me in 2016, we, we wouldn't be worried about that right now. <laughs> I, and I probably wouldn't be interviewing you right now. <laughs> I would hope so. <laughs> because I was an activist before I ran for office, and I was an activist. I'm an, I'm yeah. an, an advocate. An okay? advocate, yes. Yeah, before I ran for office. And, and it, was that, it was that that led me to run, actually. The uh, the work that I've been doing, I've been working with Fight for 15. I've been working for, you know, to um, expand Medicaid in South Carolina. I've been working to end gun violence. They're everything, you know, unionizing here. The whole nine public schools and strengthening public schools, I've been trying to, you know, advocating in all those areas. And when that election came around and I found out that uh, Scott was running unopposed in that, ex that, that, that uh, uh, election and the state party had not, gotten anybody to run against them, the act the activist in me, okay, mm -hmm. not the advocate, yes. but the activist in me said, you gotta do something. Don't let this guy just run unopposed. You know he stands for everything that you don't and and he stands against everything that you do. Run. I didn't know anything about the political system. I didn't even know what the US Senate was. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I didn't even know that the US senator was responsible for the entire state. Mm-hmm. So the campaign had to cover 46 counties, 32,000 square miles, uh, and 5 million people. I didn't know that when I opened up my mouth and said it. But once I said it, I couldn't go back on it. My word is bond. Uh -huh. And so um, I, I launched that campaign. It was $10,000 to file. I didn't have any money. I'm retired. I got Social Security. Uh, and I don't have a savings or anything like that. So I just prayed. As Pastor Dixon, I prayed. And I said, if this is what you want me to do, You'll make it happen. Two days before the filing deadline, I filed for that seat. Um, in the next eight months of uh, or seven months of campaigning, I raised thirty thousand uh, dollars. So a total of forty thousand dollars, and I came up with thirty-seven percent of the vote. Wow! Uh, against some seven hundred fifty-seven thousand people voted for me. I covered every with no experience. I got no help from our state party uh, or anything. It was just me, and I had a, a put together team. Nobody had any experience. I thought that since I was the only candidate that was going to be running, Democrat running against Scott, that I would at least get direction from the party. I got none of that. They told me to get on the phone and call and beg people for money. 
Now, I got people that call me regularly ask me for money. First, I said, who are you? And you want me to give you some money? I'm not giving you. I don't even know you. So I can imagine the people that I called. I called a couple of hundred people, and yeah. I didn't get anything. So uh, I knew that I had opened up my mouth and said, I'm running for this office, so I had to get on the ground. So it was me, a 2007 Nissan Xterra with uh, four ball tires and, um, and no AC uh, in one of the hottest summers we had, and the only window that did the, the window that didn't work was the driver window. <laughs> I, covered this, <laughs> I covered this state. Uh, you know, I would get up in the morning at that four, 3 or 4 a.m. and head to Greenville for a three-minute radio spot. From mm -hmm. Greenville, I go to Greenwood for an event. Hilton Head from there and then come home, get a couple hours sleep and go to Darlington or, or, or Florence. And I did that for uh, almost seven months, seven months. And it, but it, it, it worked out. Forty thousand dollars, seven hundred fifty-seven thousand votes, thirty-seven percent. Well, my good friend Jamie Harrison, when he ran against Lindsey Graham, he had like maybe fifty million plus dollars and um, experience and exposure and support from our good congressman here, who I didn't get support from him either. Mm -hmm. um, he came up with forty-four percent of the vote, seven percent higher, with fifty-some odd million dollars. So there's. <laughs> there's 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 headway to be made here is what I'm is what I'm thinking. Yes, absolutely. Just with a little more support from mm -hmm. South Carolina's Democratic machine. What what did you what did you learn at the end of the day from this from this experience? The from the political experience. Yeah, going through the process. That there's there's two different democratic political systems in 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 our, in our state. There's one that is the machine aspect of it, and then there's the one that's the values-oriented aspect of it. The machine is interested in, in, in preserving, preserving their position, their power and their position. And they run the whole show, whereas the people on the ground are interested in the values. The people who actually do the voting, they're interested in the values. What do you represent? How, uh, how will what you do impact us on a day-to-day -day basis? And I think that's what connected, what resonated with me with them is because I talked about the issues. I mean, this was the same year where Bernie Sanders introduced a platform that actually mimicked everything I was saying. And I had, but I had been doing this for years already. Um, and um, the people were like, wow, this is new, this is fresh, who is this guy? And then I started out by telling them, well, I just got out of prison in 2001. And after 30 years of alcohol and drug addiction, oh. they stopped and they said, huh? <laughs> yes, the road to redemption. I said, and now here I am standing before you asking for your vote for U.S. Senate. Somebody who is not, it was unbought and unbossed. I got, I'm not, I'm unashamedly bold in what I say, and I tell the truth. And the people throughout the state, they, they, they love that. They love that uh, because I proved it. I, I told them, if you don't believe what I'm saying, Google me, you know. That's what I did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My record stands for itself. Um, but. That, that other class, though, the, the elitist, the insiders, they're really holding this, uh, the progress that we could be making here in South Carolina, they're holding it down. That's why earlier I said, you know, for the last 20 years, Republicans have controlled both the House and the Senate and the General Assembly, have controlled the governor's office for the last 20 years. We can't win like that. We have, uh, we have some good Democrats that have been elected to General Assembly. But the, their whole fight is about compromise. When the opposition 
is about we do what we want to do. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. when you're outvoted two to one, you can't win. Right. <laughs> it's impossible right. to win. And then because of that attitude, they're, they're more prone to not reach the masses of the people who actually are the ones voting. That's why we see a mass exodus, a bleed out of, of Dems. People who are saying, okay, well, uh, I'm just not, I'm not going to be a Democrat anymore, or I'm not going to vote, you know, especially in the African-American community. You see people saying, I'm not going to vote. Mm-hmm. Uh, for so many years, the Democrats have been pl- promising, you vote for me, and we're going to do this, and we're going to do that. And then after they get to vote, don't see them anymore. Right. And there are kids now who have grown up, and, and now they can vote. And they heard their parents saying, voting is the way. And well, well we tried your way, and our, our communities got worse. We don't even have street lights on our community, no parks or nothing like that. So a lot have decided I'm not even going to be bothered. So that's the obstacle we face now, and it's based on this elitist top in the Democratic Party that really wants to, actually expects the vote mm-hmm. of the poor, mm-hmm. uh, black, brown, and, and, and all citizens uh, poor, expect that vote, but don't want to give the respect due for that vote. And that's contrary to what the Democratic uh, as far as Democratic Party principles are to right. me, that doesn't match up. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. Will you consider another run? I'm not Hopefully. running for okay. <laughs> <laughs> No, sir, Thomas. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. I, actually, I ran for mayor of North Charleston uh, in the last election cycle four years ago. Okay. And um, that didn't turn out so well. Uh, I thought that the people would really want uh, somebody that they, you know, that they knew. But I had an opponent who managed to reach a large segment of people who did not really know about me. And he spread my prison record as if it would happen yesterday. Mm-hmm. Yeah, instead of 20 years earlier. Right, you know? right, so, right. <laughs> So uh, that didn't work out too well. So now my, my, my position is to identify good, good people who are running for office and to support them fully. Yeah. Even in this, in this election right here, I'm, I'm not running for an office, but I'm running against some people. <laughs> I understand that. So they can stand by. <laughs> well, Pastor Dixon, I really appreciate your time Thank today. You. It's, been a, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you. I appreciate you, Thomas. courthouse that was built in 1896 and prior to that it was our city armor. The best known judge that ever practiced here was Judge Julius Waitees Waring who was born here in 1880 and his father was a Confederate general. Now in 1946 he tried a case called Isaac Woodard versus Linwood Shelf. Isaac Woodard was a black man from Winsboro, South Carolina who had just gotten discharged from the Second World War and was at the bus station in Augusta to, drop, to go back to Winsboro to see his wife. So on the way back to Winsboro, he's in the back of the bus, and he asked the bus driver if he could pull over to use the bathroom. Well, the bus driver called him the N-word and told him, you get off of this blankety-blank bus when I stop the so-and-so bus. 
So Isaac Woodard just got back to fight the Japanese, so he's feeling no fear. So he cursed the bus driver back in 1946 from the back of the bus in rural South Carolina. This didn't end well. The bus then went into the country town of Batesburg, South Carolina, 40 miles to the west of our capital in Columbia. And the bus driver went into jail and got Sheriff Linwood Shaw, who proceeded to drag Isaac Woodard off the bus and beat him in the face with a billy club until he lost his sight. Judge Waring tried the case. And at the end of the trial, he told the all-white jury to deliberate. The jury came back in five minutes and ruled in favor of Sheriff Shell, not guilty, Your Honor, and the courthouse applauded. And Judge Waring's wife, Elizabeth, burst into tears and ran out of the courthouse. And Judge Waring stripped off his robe, stormed in the street and vowed, I will never try another case like this again as long as I live. So one year later, July 12, 1947, inside this courthouse, Judge Julius Waitees Waring ruled that the laws preventing black people from voting in South Carolina since Reconstruction violated the 15th Amendment to the Constitution of the United States. So that allowed my parents and their generation of black people to vote in South Carolina. But that was not universally appreciated because rocks went through his window and crosses were burned on his lawn. So the next year, he visited President Harry S. Truman, and he told President Truman the story that I just told you. And President Truman said, my God, I had no idea it was that bad down there. And that is what led President Harry S. Truman to sign the executive order banning segregation in the armed forces of the United States of America. So three years later, 1951, Judge Waring tried the case called Briggs versus Elliott, where Harry Briggs and his wife Eliza, a black couple up in Winsboro, excuse me, Somerton, South Carolina, sued because the white school was palatial and the black school was a tar paper shack. It is important that I explain that part of the reason for that was that the wealthy whites of the South wanted the blacks to serve as a permanent class of cheap labor. So therefore, that what better way to ensure that than to separate, ostracize, and undereducate people for that purpose? So they sued, and their lawyer was the great Thurgood Marshall, who in 1967 would become the first black Supreme Court Justice of the United States. So Judge Waring ruled in favor of the Briggs family that segregation violated the 14th Amendment to the Constitution of the United States. But that was a federal case with two other federal judges, John J. Parker and, and George Bell Timmerman, who would later become governor. They ruled against Judge Waring to prevent the segregation from happening in South Carolina. So Judge Waring faced another round of harassment with his wife, and at 72 he was too old for that, so, he moved, so he, they moved to New York for the rest of his life. The case made its way to Washington, D.C. as Brown versus Board of Education, which ruled on paper that the school should be desegregated. You are listening to WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOLN Olean, and WUBJ Jamestown, your NPR station. WBFO special reports from Charleston, South Carolina for Buffalo What's Next are funded by our members and Health Foundation for Western and Central New York and WNY Medical. WBFO is grateful for their support.